I sure am glad I came today. Are you glad you came? Amen. Amen. Uh, again, just good morning to everybody who's here and joining us online. We're, 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 we're glad that you're with us today. My name is Mark Cullum. Uh, honored to serve as the Connection Pastor here. And I uh, uh, want to say thank you all, uh, not just to our worship team, but to everybody. I'm getting a lot of humming uh, back here. Um, everybody who serves today. There, we've got people doing all sorts of things. Some of them are very visible. Uh, some, of you, some of them shook your hands this morning when you came. Uh, uh, some of them are sort of behind the scenes. You don't see, see a whole lot of them. In some cases, that's by design. Um, but uh, however you serve, in whatever area that you serve, uh, wherever and however and whoever you are serving today, we just want you to know that you are appreciated. We would not have First Open Bible if it weren't for those who volunteer. It just would not be the same without each and every one of us doing our part. How many of you found that sometimes the hardest thing in the world is waiting? It's kind of hard sometimes, isn't it? Huh? I was uh, talking to Pastor Sonny and, uh, a couple of weeks or so ago. He, he finally got his ref- finally got the results of his final checkup. I think the tests were done on maybe a Monday or something like that, and you found out on Wednesday or some, some, something like that. Those are probably the two longest days or three longest days that he's experienced in a long time, waiting for the results. How's it going to look? You know, all the indications were, you know, look pretty optimistic, but until you get the final results, you just don't know. And the waiting is sometimes the hardest part. Have you found that in your life? Waiting for something that you've been longing for is sometimes the hardest part. I think of uh, when I was a kid, uh, maybe you too and, and our kids. It was, seemed like such a long time until Christmas arrived. Right? I mean, it was forever. I mean, we had Thanksgiving, and then it seemed like 16 years or so, and then Christmas would come, okay? It seemed so long, and now that I'm on the other end of the age spectrum, now it seems like Christmas gets here way faster than, than it used to. But when I was a kid, the arrival was so now it's so fast some of you who have children maybe you remember the excitement when you found out you were going to have a baby I thought that I thought there'd be shouts of joy over that but (laughs) apparently it didn't work out so well for you I I, huh Still tired from all that, I guess. Yeah, that's what Pastor says. Huh? You find out, and of course these days, I don't ever remember growing up, we didn't have uh, a gender reveal parties uh, where we found out whether it was blue or pink. Uh, we just, whenever they arrived, we found out. Um, 
But after the announcement follows waiting and waiting and waiting through multiple doctor's appointments and tests and the pain and discomfort and the kicking and the Lamaze classes and the baby showers and all those annoying people who just keep asking you, haven't you had your baby yet? <laughs> now, Debbie and I, we were quite fortunate. Uh, both, both of our sons were born a couple of weeks before their originally assigned due date. Uh, but I'm guessing a few of you moms had a different experience. Things went a little longer than the, the due date. Uh, uh, but I think in pretty much every case, moms universally were very much ready to have that baby. Hmm? There comes a point when it's not fun any longer. It, the excitement is long gone, Okay. We just want this thing out, okay? <laughs> and that weight can be an incredibly difficult and trying time. It seems so long. As Christians, we're probably involved in the longest wait of all. Now, we sang this morning that he's coming again, and he is. But right now, we are in the period of waiting. The wait for the return of Jesus Christ. Waiting can be difficult. Waiting can be hard. Waiting can have some consequences for some people that, if we're not careful, we can experience those consequences as well. The Apostles' Creed, I've referred to that a few times in my sermons. It has this to say, what we believe about Jesus, that Jesus ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father Almighty. But it goes on to say, from there he will come to judge the living and the dead. What was true 2,000 years ago, what was affirmed by the church 2,000 years ago and every year since then, is Jesus is coming again. We don't know when, but we can be assured that it will happen. But one of the dangers of waiting so long is we begin to ask questions. Did we get this right? Have we get, did we figure this out? Has the church got it wrong for a couple thousand years? It seems that the Bible is clear that Jesus is coming back, but why hasn't he come back yet? I bet you there's been lots of times throughout human history that the saints of God have asked the question, why doesn't he come back now? Because now looks like a good time for him to come back. It sure would be convenient for me and for our world if Jesus would just return and get this mess cleaned up. There have been messes throughout the entirety of human history. We live in our own mess. Jesus may come and save us from this mess. I don't rule out that possibility. 
Matter of fact, I hope for it. I long for it. I pray for it. I pray like the Apostle John who ended up, uh, Revelation said, even so, come Lord Jesus. If he came today, that'd be all right with me. I would rather him have come last Friday. That way I wouldn't have to have lived through Saturday and the loss of my Ohio State. Buckeyes to the hands of the team up north. But God had other plans. I don't know the time. I don't know the day. But here's what I want to avoid. One of the dangers that comes from waiting or during a time of waiting is that we often can have the tendency to become complacent. Well, he didn't come yesterday. I thought he was going to come now. Uh, he could have come. Yeah. And, and so then we sort of just resign ourselves to the fact that, well, maybe he's just not coming at all. Or we don't live as if he could come today. It's like a, a military platoon that goes through training and training and training, but they never get to use that training in battle. It's possible that they can lose their edge. They can lose their intensity. And unfortunately, perhaps when the time arrives for them to exercise what they've been trained to do, they may not be as ready as they could have been. Years ago, I had a the privilege of going with a group of my fellow ministers. This is when we lived in Ohio. We took a, uh, a van load of us down to Columbus, Ohio, to a place called Rickenbacker Air Force Base. Rickenbacker uh, has a, the Ohio Air National Guard is stationed there. And uh, we had the privilege of meeting up with the chaplain that, the, that oversaw uh, of, of the entire uh, Ohio Air National Guard. And he invited us down, and we got to go on a plane ride in a KC-235, I believe was the number, which is an air refueling tanker. Yeah, big airplane, not many seats, but lots of gasoline and fuel tanks. The purpose of these is to refuel planes while in flight. And so we went on a refueling training session. We met up with a group that was coming, I think, from someplace in Arkansas or Texas. We met up with them over Missouri somewhere. Their plane pulled up to the back of ours. And I'm laying in the back with the boomer who is operating this long tube and he controls it down to the top of this other tube and to this other plane and transfers 1,000 gallons of fuel while we're both flying. However many hundreds of miles an hour we're flying. Then he disconnected, brings the boom up. We rise up in the sky. That plane goes under us. We drop, behind, drop down behind it. Their boomer puts his tube down to the top of our plane and just transfers that 1,000 gallons of fuel right back to us. We were talking to, to, the, uh, to the crew and said, man, you guys just have this down to a science. This is, this is perfect. He goes, we have more 
by far more hours of training in doing this than the regular army and regular air force. In a, if we had to go to war, they would want us to be doing this because we do this every single week. We do these missions. We practice this every single week. Can I submit to you that when it comes to our Christian walk, we need to live the Christian life every single day. We may not be called home, but until we are, until the rubber meets the road, until that event happens, we need to be ready. We need to continue to press forward in our faith. We need to continue to take our faith seriously and make sure that we are ready whenever he comes. This whole month we've been talking about the, uh, the importance of prophecy and the, the coming of Jesus. And we've tried to capture that in the, in the theme, fear not, understanding the times. In several cases... Uh, pastor and uh, others who have spoken on Wednesday nights have referred to Matthew chapter 24, one of the biggest uh, prophecy chapters in the, in the New Testament. In case you didn't know, there's a Matthew 25. There is a Matthew 25. Thankfully, Jesus just didn't end everything, all of his teaching there at Matthew 24. As important as that is and as crucial as it is to our faith and our understanding of what is to come. Jesus continued. Matthew 25, by the way, if you, if you don't have a Bible or you want to use one of the pew Bibles, it's on page 823 in your pew Bible. Matthew is the first gospel in the New Testament, and it's the very first book in the New Testament. So get in your tables of contents and find Matthew. Again, we're going to be in chapter 25 this morning. I want to share a passage of scripture from there today. It's a story that if you've been in church any length of time, you've probably heard this once or twice. In verse 1 of chapter 25, Jesus begins to speak in a parable again. Then the kingdom of heaven will be like ten bridesmaids who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were wise. The five who were foolish didn't take enough olive oil in their lamps, but the other five were wise enough to take along extra oil. They were prepared. When the bridegroom was delayed, they all became drowsy and fell asleep. At midnight, they were roused by the shout, Look, the bridegroom is coming. Come out and meet him. All the bridesmaids got up and prepared their lamps, and then the five foolish ones asked the others, please give us some of your oil because our lamps are going out. But the others replied, we don't have enough for all of us. Go to a shop and buy some for yourselves. But while they were gone to buy oil, the bridegroom came. Then those who were ready went in with him to the marriage feast, and the door was locked. Later, when the other five bridesmaids returned, they stood outside calling, Lord, Lord, open the door for us. But he called back, believe me, I do not know you. And Jesus concludes this. He says, so you too must keep watch. 
for you do not know the day or hour of my return. Understanding the times, in order to do that, we have to keep watch. We have to stay alert. In the days of Jesus, the, the, the bridal attendants, they, they would come to the house of the bride and, and wait for the arrival of the groom to, to take his bride. And uh, they didn't know when he was going to arrive. But when, uh, when he did, they would form this, uh, uh, this formal procession from the bride's house to the groom's house. And much like in the weddings uh, today, being chosen to be uh, a bridesmaid uh, was quite an honor. So these women had lamps of some kind uh, that uh, needed oil for, for their fuel. Um, and in this account, the bridegroom, it says, took longer than they had expected. So all the bridesmaids, perhaps understandably, they, they all got drowsy and fell asleep. Maybe that's a picture of us waiting for Jesus to come. And there are going to be times where we're going to get drowsy and we may fall asleep. God knows we need times of rest. God knows our physical bodies can only take so much. God knows our spiritual uh, selves can only take so much. Our mental selves can only take so much. We can only absorb so much at a time and we need rest. Jesus practiced rest. He got away from the crowds. He got away from the disciples and took time to get rest. And to recover from the taxing ministry that he was involved in on an almost daily basis. Well, the bridegroom comes and five of the ten, according to this story, they discovered they didn't have enough oil in their lamps to keep them lit. So they asked the others if they could borrow some oil. Uh, and the others, um, well, we, we don't have enough for both of us. We need, we need our oil for for ourselves, for our procession. Uh, so the, the, the five that were lacking a, a sufficient supply, they, they ran into town to try to buy some oil. I always thought that was curious. Uh, it's like, did they have 7-Elevens back then? Uh, you know, who's open at midnight? I, I don't know. There, there's nothing in the Bible to suggest that. This is just Mark thinking uh, out loud, which can be dangerous some, sometimes. Not sure whether they got oil or not. The Bible doesn't say. But it says they did go back. But when they got back, it was too late. The bridegroom had already come. The door had been closed. The door had been locked. Again, and this is interesting to me, not only were they refused entry, not only were they, sorry, sorry no vacancy, sorry, we're full, wasn't anything like that. They were also told that they were unknown by the bridegroom. I don't even know you. Now there's part of me, I don't know about you, part of me, I kind of feel sorry for these bridesmaids. And, and maybe from a certain point of view, it might seem a little unfair that after just this minor miscalculation these women would be shunned at the door of the bridegroom. But the whole point of this story is not whether it's fair or not. The point of the story is this. It is the response 
of the groom that is designed to teach us something about the kingdom of God. Now, in this story, it seems clear that in this illustration, the, the bridegroom is Jesus, the Lord Jesus. And these ten bridesmaids, I think they represent what we might call the visible church. All the people that are gathered here this morning, all the people that are gathered in churches, all the people that, uh, uh, that assemble in churches around the world on any given Sunday, they depict people, if you will, who call or at least think of themselves as believers. And there's a lot in common between these bridesmaids. One commentator by the name of uh, James Boyce suggested a few things. He said they were all invited to be part of the bridal party. They all had responded positively to that invitation. We might say in church language today, they made a decision in the church. Thirdly, they joined the fellowship of the other bridesmaids. They confessed loyalty to the groom, otherwise they wouldn't have been there. They were anticipating the coming of the groom, and all ten of them fell asleep. Those are the things that are common across the board for all ten of these. But what we need to understand if we're to understand the times that we live in, is to understand what Jesus is trying to tell us here in this parable. This parable, I do not think, is about people who are hostile to the faith. I don't think it's talking about people who don't want to have anything to do with church or anything to do with Jesus. I, I think it has everything to do with the church, and people who are part of the visible church. In other words, people like you and me, people who come to church, people who are a part of a church, people... Uh, and by the way, have you ever asked yourself, why did you start coming to church? Here, specifically. But why did you start going to church at all? I was five years old when I first went to church. You know why I went? Because my mom and dad said, get ready, you're going to church. I had no idea what that meant. I was five years old. I'd never been to church in my life. Okay? So I got on my white shirt. I got my clip-on red tie. Yeah, it was awesome. <laughs> yeah, I've always been on the, as you can tell, I've always been on the cutting edge of fashion evolution. So, uh... That's why we went to church. That's why I went to the church for the first time. You know why I started coming here? Because Pastor Harris hired me. And I would have felt bad if I was collecting a paycheck and didn't come to church. So that's why I first came to church. But people become part of churches for a lot of reasons. I don't think it's so much so today, but it certainly was years ago. Some people just went to church because, well, that's just what good people did. That's what upstanding people did. You went to church. And it was a little easier to get to church. Didn't have so many other commitments and other options on a Sunday morning. But that's what good people did. Some people, I think, do like some of the things that Jesus taught. I think they do. 
Maybe that's why they go to church. Maybe they go to church because they just they want to hear an uplifting song or an uplifting message. And that's okay. But that can only take us so far. Maybe their family has always gone to church or this church. Maybe that's why they started. Maybe that's why they keep coming. It's sort of a family tradition. Some people have said, good intentions, they want to take their kids to a place where they can learn good values. That's great. I, I, just, I just wished that the parents would want to learn the same values as their, they want their children to learn. You never outgrow values, by the way. You can outgrow fads, but you can never outgrow values and principles. Now, some people go to church because that's where the friends go to church. That's great. I hope, you're, I hope you had a friend that invited you to come to church. Maybe that's why you're here. And I suppose there's a vanishingly small possibility that some people come because they like the connection, Pastor. Yep. <laughs> the point is, and I think this is part of the point of this parable Jesus is telling us about, is that people can look like believers and yet not actually be someone who is fully turned to Christ. They don't acknowledge him as the Savior because they don't acknowledge they need a Savior. They don't follow him as their Lord because they've already got life figured out and they'll be their own masters. They may be in the church, but somehow they've missed the point of why church even exists. I read an interesting story of a uh, fellow and his wife who uh, lived not too far from a particular zoo, and this zoo had just opened a brand new exhibit uh, for primates. Now, primates, that's the monkeys and the baboons and the orangutan, all of that, Okay. Brand new facility, brand new exhibit. And it was, I mean, it was so neat looking. I mean, they, they had this thing designed and built to exact detail. A large natural habitat that they were informed by the, uh, the zoologists that worked there uh, that this was guaranteed to make the animals happy. Unfortunately, for zoo visitors, happiness for animals includes the avoidance of human beings. Now, I suppose it's important that animals be happy, but how could we tell? We couldn't see them. But now more than ever, we can look at the vegetation in which these happy animals hide. Very quickly, through filling out suggestion cards, the zoo managers 
came across a startling thought that was shared by many of the zoo visitors. In case you didn't know, people visit zoos to see the animals. Is that something new? People go to zoos because they want to see the animals. And if you can't see the animals, what's the point of the zoo? I've been to several zoos, several really nice zoos. I've got a great one over in Omaha. Really nice one. You've been there? Yeah. I didn't go there to find out about the emotional and psychological health of the animals. I mean, I hope they're doing well in those respects. But I went to see them. I wanted to take pictures of them. I wanted to see animals that I normally would not see just walking down the street. If the primary goal of a zoo is to make animals happy, the one suggestors suggested, how about we just abolish the zoo and let them go? They'll be a whole lot happier than being caged up. I wonder, I wonder if sometimes the same, thing hap same things happen in a church. That if we're not careful, we can be far more concerned about people's happiness than about their holiness. I think a lot of this influence comes from the culture around us. Because the cultural set, culture around us says... You, not, not just that you should be happy, you deserve to be happy. You are owed happiness. Not only happiness, maximal happiness for everybody. And sometimes I think if we're not careful, that mindset can shape our theology. By the way, this isn't a new challenge. It's been around since the inception of the church. There have always been influences of the culture around believers and of the church that says, I think you ought to do things our way. And guess what? In many cases, Christians did. Christians succumbed to the culture around them. It's not that big of a deal. Just offer a sacrifice to Caesar and you can go on and do your thing as Christians. Just acknowledge that Caesar is God too and everything will be fine. It's not that big of a deal. Sadly, many Christians did. Many Christians lost their lives because they refused to bend a knee to Caesar. I thank God for them because they're the ones that laid the foundation of the church that exists today. If it weren't for their faithfulness, you and I would not have the opportunity to know Christ 
as we have today. We owe them a debt. Christians have been faced with the temptation to capitulate to the culture in every generation. Now, we need to be mindful of cultural trends. We need to know what's going on in the world around us. We really do. If for no other reason than to, to know some of the things to avoid. We need to know what's going on in the world around us. I heard a great illustration many, many years ago. I might have shared this here before, but uh, uh, many years ago, I worked in the car business, and somebody said to me, he said, uh, was asked a question, how, how, how can you be successful in the car business? He said, well, he said, first thing you can do is look at the people who aren't successful and don't do what they do. At a minimum. Okay? We've seen where Christians have failed in the past. Let's not do what they did. There's no sense in us repeating mistakes for the sake of getting along with the world that we live in. We need to understand the times, but we also need to be vigilant to ward off those temptations, to change our faith just to accommodate a culture that doesn't want anything to do with God. We got we must understand the times. Now, Scripture seems to be pretty clear. If we're going to be friends with the world, it follows that that makes us enemies of God. James 4.4. 4. It's in page 1021, and if you're using a pew Bible. You adulterers! Wow. James. James goes on to say, don't you realize that friendship with the world makes you an enemy of God? And for good measure, he goes on to say, I say it again, if you want to be a friend of the world, you make yourself an enemy of God. Usually, if you see in literature that somebody repeats something, they do it for emphasis, which means this is an important point. If you want to be friends with the world, that will cost you a relationship with God. In other words, you can't have both. You decide what you want. There's no point in us trying to adjust our faith, try, trying to adjust our theology just so the world will like us a little bit more. Once we get to the place where we're concerned about what non-Christians believe about our beliefs, we've already given away half the battle. We need to hold fast to the truth. We need to hold fast to the faith that has been handed down to us at the cost of people's lives in many cases. The treasure that we have in our faith is not something to be trivialized. It's not something to be just pushed aside so that we can be friends with a world that wants nothing to do with God. Because sooner or later, a world that wants nothing to do with God will be the same world that wants nothing to do with God's people. No matter how much they try to accommodate and make concessions. 
It just doesn't work. It doesn't work today, it's never worked in the past, and it will never work in the future. There is no such thing as a conditional surrender to the world system. Eh, just offer a sacrifice to Caesar and everything will be okay. How'd that work out? Not well for the people who accommodated it. Eh, just be a little, you know, lighten up a little bit on the, on the, uh, uh, the transgender thing. Lighten up a little bit on, you know, this, you know, sexual ethics and stuff. You know, just, you know, don't get so crazy and fanatical about that. And, and we'll get along okay. Yeah. Wrong, 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 wrong. The culture has and continues to demand unconditional surrender. They're willing to take concessions along the way, but the ultimate goal is for they want us to abandon our faith. I don't know about you, but I'm inclined to refuse that offer. If we wish to be friends and to be loved by the world, well... There's a price to pay. And it's to become an enemy of God. Now you pick it. I don't really want to be an enemy of God. I, 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 I don't see how that would turn out well. Huh? Because I, I read in the Bible... Lots of stuff where there are lots of things that really tick God off. And he's going to ultimately judge that. He's done judgments throughout the pages of Scripture. Why? Because people have adopted, the con have adopted concessions to the cultures around them. With the ancient Israelites, it was giving in to idolatry idolatry to the countries around them and the religious beliefs around them. The same has held true through the entire history of the church and it still holds true today. To gain the whole world or the temporary approval of the world amounts to no gain at all. As a matter of fact, it ultimately means losing everything of eternal value. Mark chapter 8. What do you benefit if you gain the whole world but lose your own soul? What benefit is it to you and I to have non-Christian friends and, and in order to be friends with them we have to let back off of our own beliefs. What have we gained? In the long run, nothing at all. Now, on the other hand, one of the most, most basic needs that you and I have as human beings is the need to be accepted. We long and need acceptance for who we are, not just for anything about us, but just because we exist. 
and that we are human beings. We need somebody to love us. It's not just that we want somebody to love us. We need somebody to love us. The Bible is asking us the question, who's it going to be? Is it going to be the world? Or is it going to be God? To gain acceptance and love from a world that is coming to an end and in exchange for losing the love of the creator of all that is, and who will never cease to exist, seems rather foolish to me. The Bible tells us that if we're going to be followers of Jesus Christ, we need to be all in. Period. Period. Not a little of this and a little of that and a little of this, and oh, you can just continue to dabble in, in the world. No. Paul says in Romans 12, so dear brothers and sisters, again, he's not writing to people that are hostile to Christianity. I plead with you to give your bodies to God because of all he has done for you. Let them be a living and holy sacrifice, the kind he will find acceptable. This is truly the way to worship him. Don't copy the behavior and customs of this world. But let God transform you into a new person by changing the way you think. Then you will learn how to know God's will for you, which is good and pleasing and perfect. I was thinking this past week when I was reading this passage to don't copy the behavior and the customs of this world. The behavior and customs of this world are not confined just to the things we disagree about or disagree with. There can be perfectly good things or perfectly acceptable things that we can align ourselves with that, if we're, again, if we're not careful, that it can become a dividing force in our lives and separate us from God. Don't become so attached to this world and this world's systems that you lose sight and lose control and lose ultimately your eternal soul. Even if it's for what we might call good things. Should we stand up for what is right? Absolutely. Should we stand against what is wrong? Absolutely. But most of all, we need to stand for Jesus Christ, who is the pinnacle of righteousness. It's not your views on social issues. It's not your political views that are the righteous things. Jesus Christ is the righteous one. As a matter of fact, he's the only righteous one. None of us is righteous, Romans tells us. Not a single one of us. Every single one of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And anything we put our hands to that is not in line with the word of God will ultimately fail anyway. 
I want to, when I stand before God one day, he's not going to ask me my stance on any particular social issue. He's not going to ask me my political party affiliation. He's going to ask me and inquire of me, what have you done with my son Jesus? Jesus asked the question to his disciples one day, who do people say that I am? And they had various answers. And then finally he put it to them. Who do you say that I am? Friends, in the long run, that's what matters. That's what matters. We can belong to a church that does all kinds of great things, have all kinds of wonderful programs, and, and it can all look great from the outside. But is it possible that in, even in the midst of all of that, we can be missing the main thing? Pointing people to a savior means also pointing them to the fact that they're lost and need a savior. You know what separates us from God? It's sin. And sin is not just what those evil people out there are doing. Sin is the thing that separates us from God. How often are we sorrowful for our own sin? Or do we just kind of want to push it back into the cupboard for a while and sing our hallelujahs? We are made up of all of those things. I, I thoroughly enjoy singing. I thoroughly enjoy music. I love playing music. I'm not the greatest singer, but I like playing music. We can have all the best things, but unless we're pointing people to repentance and a true turning to Jesus Christ, Maybe just, we're just a zoo full of happy animals. I don't want to be that. And I'm sure Pastor Harris does. Pastor Harris has said on many occasions, he's, well, this is a place where we want people to find Jesus. We don't, want you to, we don't want you to just find, to get over a hump that you currently are facing. That's important too. But the main thing is, do you know Jesus? If you were to die today, where would you spend eternity? Because in the end, that's what matters. Eternity is a whole lot longer than just these few years we spend here on this earth. When the bridegroom returns, I think that there'll be a lot of excited people. Kids church teachers, deacons, pastors, missionaries, people who tithe regularly, youth leaders. They'll be excited when Jesus comes back. Worship team members. But if Jesus' story is to have any merit or point to it, it may be that out of all the Christians in the world, all of these people who are excited about you, many of them may not have enough oil. In, a, in, a, in other words, they don't possess the Spirit of God. They would be followers of Jesus in name only. Not only will they be excluded from the banquet, the bridegroom is going to say, I never knew you. Christianity is more than having an experience. 
It's truly and totally surrendering to Christ. That's one, thing, one reason why I think this parable is so important. It should lead each of us to examine our faith. We need to ask whether we're represented uh, in this story by the wise bridesmaids or the foolish ones. In Matthew 7, verse 21 through 23, Jesus says, Not everyone who calls out to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Only those who actually do the will of my Father in heaven will enter. On judgment day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, we prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, and performed many miracles in your name. But I will reply, I never knew you. Get away from me, you who break God's laws. God is not in, interested in some sort of spiritual resume. God is interested in the condition of your heart. Look at these people with these great qualifications. Jesus does not deny that they did these things. They prophesied in his name. They cast out demons. They performed miracles. And yet, Jesus still says to them, I never knew you. Why? Because they were not true followers of Jesus Christ. One writer by the name of Kyle Eidelman observed this. He said, these people, they were fans of Jesus, not followers. Yay, Jesus. We like Jesus. He's a pretty swell guy. But they weren't followers. So the question is, how do we end up like the wise bridesmaids? I want to be one of the wise bridesmaids. I want, I want to be part of that gathering that goes in to the marriage supper of the Lamb that John talks about in Revelation. I want to be part of that group. I think the first step to be ready for his return is first of all to look inside. Have you ever thought to yourself, you know... Yeah, I hear all this talk about Jesus coming again and everything, but I think I still got some time to get serious about my faith. You know, maybe after the holidays and things have settled down a little bit, yeah, then I'll, then I'll get, get really serious about my faith. Well, if you've thought that or are thinking that even today, you still don't get it. Jesus is not calling us to join a club or to just make a one-time decision and commitment. He's calling us to be made new. He's calling us to be made alive. We who are dead in trespasses and sins. Being part of his family is not just a box we check on a piece of paper. It's a surrendering to his work in our lives. Or maybe you think, well, I'm, I'm a pretty good person. I'll fit in pretty good with those other good people that go to church. Again, as I mentioned just before, there's not a single one of us who's good. There's only one who is good, and that is Jesus. The absolute necessary prerequisite for salvation is this, recognizing that you need salvation. Until you come to that point, Christianity doesn't have a whole lot to offer you. Further, Christianity is not going to be the easy life. 
C.S. Lewis put it this way. He said, if you're looking for an easy religion, I would not recommend Christianity. There are plenty of other options. We come to Jesus because he is the Savior and he is the Lord and I need a Savior and I need a Lord. I come to him because I am lost and because I am in need of rescue and only he can do that. Following Jesus, one of the means by which we can serve him is through the community of believers like a church. But it's different than, say, serving in just a community of people. I heard about this thing you guys had a few years ago. It's called a derecho. Anybody remember, remember that? Or is it faded from memory? You know. I wasn't here while that happened. I was here shortly thereafter and saw all the piles of tree limbs down lining every street in the entire city. In times of crisis, people do seem to pull together. I think we saw some great acts of great care and service in a community. But guess what? Over time, people packed up their chainsaws and their generators and went back home. Following Jesus is not like that. Following Jesus is staying with Jesus every single day, even after the crisis is over. We come to Christ for salvation because he's the one who can save us. Well, we should do then what the Bible tells us. Pray that God would give us strength and wisdom to walk in this life. Because we never know when our last moment will be. We need to put his instructions into practice, not just say, oh, those are nice instructions. Are you one of these people who you get the instructions on your ready-to-build, easy-to-assemble furniture and toys? You go, eh, I don't need those. Got it all up here. God didn't raise no dummy. Only to find out, you know, an hour later after lots of frustration, where's those instructions? You know, they're probably on the trash can with all the other packing that you already threw away. Put his instructions into practice. Someone rightly noted when Moses came down from Mount Sinai, he wasn't carrying the ten suggestions. Jesus is not giving us suggestions or options for our life. He's saying, this is the way to go. Take it or leave it. Amen. The Bible tells us to love his law. To follow his example. And by the way, we don't need to become spiritual cops. Okay? 
I think sometimes we're guilty of applying the words of God like, like a policeman. We become harsh and judgmental. Have you found out that we can have knowledge without a good heart? We can have a good heart without knowledge. The way to be wise is to have both. Somebody posted something on Facebook yesterday. says, our churches don't need to be looking for people with seminary degrees. They, look for, they need to look for somebody, pastors who are filled with the Holy Ghost and fire. Well, I don't see that as an either or. I say both and. I say both and. Because huh? we'd be out of here, Pastor, if seminary degrees were off the table. We both have them. We need both head and heart to follow Jesus rightly and to follow him wisely and to never forget that all of us are sinners who have been saved by the grace of God. <clears throat> Lastly, to ruthlessly eliminate the idols that are in our lives. Anything that stands in our lives as more important to us than the Lord needs to be gotten rid of. Because that idol that you turn to for fulfillment and meaning will never provide either one. It might be your work. It might be your family. It might be your hobby. It might be your politics. It might be your goals and ambitions. It might even be your own quest for happiness. But if this story Jesus tells us has any merit, and I think it does, those things are not important. What is important is who he is and who we say he is and that we have decided and we have committed to following him every single day. Now, this parable is more than just a nice little story. In some ways, it's a warning. Are you one of the five wise? Or one of the five foolish. I'm not here to make that determination. But between you and God, you can get that thing sorted out. And if he says that uh, you're not on the wise side, then it's maybe today some a day you can do something about that. To commit to follow Jesus with everything about you today and tomorrow, and the day after, and to make the changes that are necessary to make sure that you're ready when Jesus does come back. I want to be ready. How about you? It's a great song I heard many years ago. It came to my mind this week. It's written by a uh, singer-songwriter by the name of uh, Mark Hurd. And Brent, will you come this morning? And his prayer was, as he laid it out in the liner notes of the album, that tells you how old it was. It was in an album. Um, although they are coming back, I guess. He said, my prayer is that whenever Jesus returns, that I'll find that my lamp is burning bright. Because this could be the last time 
I awake. This could be the last breath that I take. This could be the last time that I pray. This could be the day I fly away. This could be the last time I sing a song. This could be the day I say so long. This could be the last meal that I eat. This could be the last beat my heart beats. But I can't place such a bet. So I won't just sit and fret until I'm gone. This could be the last day my eyes see. This could be the last day you see me. This could be the last night in my bed. This could be the last thought in my head. So I won't cast my life to the wind. I'll treasure it as much as I can while I can. And though I may be gone before too long, as long as I'm here, I'm going to keep singing this song. This could be it. I don't know. I'm not predicting. I'm just saying it's plausible and possible. We may, ne we may never worship on another Christmas Eve. Maybe Jesus will come between now and then. I don't know. We're making plans, I think, right? Yeah, as far as I know, we're going to go through Advent and do what we normally do because we're not just going to sit around and fret and sit on our hands till Jesus comes again. Until he comes, I'm going to keep doing what he's called me to do. And you should keep doing what he's called you to do. There are people in your lives, maybe you met with some of them this past Thursday, they need to know Jesus Christ. Maybe you broke bread with them this past week. They need to know Jesus. May God help us and inspire us and strengthen us to do what we can to make sure they become followers of Jesus Christ and not just admirers of Jesus Christ. That we could all be all in for the Lord. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this, this another Lord's Day that you have given to us. Yesterday, we were not promised today. And today, we're not promised tomorrow. But Lord, while it is still today and while we still have life and still have breath, Lord, help us to not just sit around and do nothing until you come again. But help us, Lord, help us, Lord, to follow fast after you, to follow hard after you, to do everything that we can, Lord, to be ready for when you come. Help us to make sure we have sufficient supply. Help us to not become complacent during the waiting, but Lord, help us to be ready for we don't know the hour that the bridegroom will come. But Lord, we do look forward to that day. So help us to be prepared and help us to help others to be prepared as well before it's too late. Jesus, I thank you for each person under the sound of my voice today. I don't know what they came in here with. 
but I hope that they are leaving here today with a renewed sense of your love, a renewed sense of gratitude for your presence in their lives. God, you are not far from any of us. Paul told the Greeks that in God we live and move and have our being. Lord, you are closer than the breath that we breathe. Lord, would you give us eyes to see and ears to hear and minds to comprehend and souls to experience your closeness today. If there's a person here today that as they have thought about what's been shared today, maybe they've come to the conclusion that they're more of an admirer than a follower of your son Jesus. I pray God that before they leave today that, that they would just come and talk to me. Lord, that they would make that commitment to become a follower and not just an admirer. And for all of us, Lord, we need your strength, we need your grace, and we need your mercy. Shower it upon us today. We ask this in the name of your son, Jesus. Let's everyone stand this morning as we conclude with song this morning.